The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. We delve into how the technology that slows down F1 cars is the key to making them quicker. And Gary reflects on half a century in Formula One. We may be in the middle of a lengthy gap in the F1 calendar, but there's no lack of technical talking points to discuss. I'm Ed Sheeran, and as always, I'm joined by the legend that is Gary Anderson, who, much like Joe Biden, has spent some of the time off on a state visit to his ancestral home. How have you been enjoying things, Gary? Yeah, it's been good. Um, you know, the old saying about the very green Ireland, I can see why. it's um, It's been pretty wet since I came over, but uh, we've been travelling around the motorhome, so... It's been quite nice to catch up with a lot of people and, you know, as I say, see the grass grow. But, uh, yeah, very, very nice, very relaxing. So glad the Chinese Grand Prix was cancelled, sort of. But um, at least it's given us a chance to catch up with my family over here. Yeah, that's never a bad thing, I would say. And usually at the start of the podcast, we let Gary have a free choice of topic. But I'm going to try and force the issue this time because we're rapidly approaching an important F1 anniversary. And that's because the 1973 Spanish Grand Prix was your first in F1. That's half a century ago at the end of the month. We're slightly early, but given that we've got Baku in a couple of weeks and there'll be some talking points there, we thought it would be a good idea just to get you to reflect on 50 years in F1, obviously, you first came in with a mechanic at Brabham that half century ago at the uh, Montjuic Park. Yeah, yeah, it's a long time ago now, whenever you think about it, but, um, you know, 50 years of, of seeing the changes in Formula One has been the big thing. But yeah, 50 years, Montjuic Park, you know, it was, it, the changes in Formula One over those, you know, five decades has been unbelievable, to be honest. It's just been, it's gone from being a, a Formula One team being, you know, six or eight people and a transit van, and off he went, um, to what it is today. It's just, it's been great to see that change. Will we ever see it again? I suppose we keep saying that. Obviously, it's, it, it will keep changing. Uh, you know, I won't be around in 50 years to see what the difference is, but um, that 50 years, I think, has seen some of the greatest times. Um, and we keep talking about that. Is, is this the greatest time in Formula One? Uh, I think every every decade is, to be honest, in some way or another, it brings something new to the show. And the cars that we have today, they're you know they're phenomenally quick, um, very very advanced te- technically. Um, they're at a level they've never ever been you know before. We were back at Montjuic Park. I remember you know we were changing wheels with a with a, a sort of T socket thing and a big hammer, um, and you were still doing them quite quickly. But you you know you had to change them like that because you didn't have all this st- equipment around you. So it's not only the cars; everything has changed dramatically over that that fifty years. So uh, it's been a really interesting period for me, and I still look at it now as a uh, you know a very very good lifetime spent in formula one and i guess when you started back then not only could you not see where f1 might be down the line but also where you'd be it's funny i was i think i was looking through auto course from 1991 and there was a reference for uh, sort of jordan being a bit of a gang of jokers and it, there's a reference to you proving that kind of a former mechanic could be a technical director in modern f1 so I guess the the Gary of 1973 would be quite amazed at what followed for you. Kind of in, I, I tend to think of you having two F1 careers, technically, although you sort of drifted in and out a little bit in the in the interim. But uh, do you think that the, the the sort of the mechanic Gary Anderson would have uh, anticipated where you'd have been in the in the 90s? No, not not in any way. To be honest, you know, the one of the things that I suppose you can say by being Irish, we've always um, done made things. You know, you. you that's what you did you know you never you didn't go out and buy stuff you actually made it and that, that was good for me to be honest because you always questioned why why something was in such a way and I remember as I say after I started at um, at Brabham sitting down with Gordon Murray you know asking him you know what was suspension geometry why you know what was this all about what were these things all about why did why did it why did you need them what made it work and Gordon was very very good at spending time with you to get you more informed I suppose it was and then as time went by there you know I got the opportunity to do some things on the cars because at that point in time as I say the teams were quite small so everybody had to contribute it wasn't like you had a you know a shop that made top front wishbones you made your top front wishbones for your car um so it it was it was a good learning curve that period and and obviously being a mechanic you also learned about the nuts and bolts of it all and, and you know how you needed to do stuff and how you needed to be able to work on cars so it it was a good learning curve but i never ever imagined getting to the point of of uh, overseeing the design of a formula one car and thankfully you know eddie jordan gave me that opportunity 
I, uh, I refused it initially because I thought I just wasn't capable. But um, after taking it on, I took it on because I never thought the car would actually end up racing. Um, it would be a good project to, to pull it together um, and to see what we could do. But um, it ended up racing, ended up doing okay. So, you know, one of those sort of situations where when the doors open, you've got to take those opportunities and give them a shot because there's nobody out there that can't do, you know, something if they're given the right opportunity and the right backing to do it. And I had those opportunities. I'm very thankful to the people around me that uh, that gave me those opportunities. So, yeah, it was, it's been fun. Yeah, I guess it's just completely different in terms of the way that's, career progression happens and obviously the idea that someone like yourself could kind of dive in and, and have the career you have now you, you couldn't do that you'd have to go through the more formal channels so that again I guess reflects on how uh, how much everything's changed but it is interesting the point you make about you know, spending time with people like Gordon Murray explaining things one of the things that I do like about the technical side is many of the technical people in F1 they just love talking about it and understanding it and some are very good at communicating actually what's what's going on that's always something I like to see in the technical personnel a, a real indication that they have a good understanding of, of what they're doing and there's almost a joy in explaining it yeah it, it is it's true and I think it's one of those sort of things if you're really really into it you sort of live it it's your life you know you don't you don't you, your mind's always ru- ru- rushing around trying to find better solutions for things or different ways of doing things or reasons for things so you never ever accept you know you never walk into a shop and say oh look at that that's really good i'll buy one of them you go away and think hmm why didn't they do it like that you know you could do you could do this or you could do that with it so i think whenever you get a, a technical guy that uh, has has confidence in himself he will try to explain it it's the ones that don't have confidence in themselves that don't try to explain it so i think confidence is a big thing in anything that you're trying to do and and especially if you're setting out with a group of people to try to design a racing car you need to have confidence in the direction you're taking um you also need to be able to recognize whenever your 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 confidence is taking you down the wrong road and uh, and retract and and you know re, you know reinvestigate so I think you're right in what you said that the you know if you get a really good technical guy he can explain what's going on because he does understand what's going on um whereas some other people will talk about it for a long time but actually they don't really quite understand what's going on they might not know 100 percent what it is you know that they're they're uh, they're trying to achieve but still they have confidence in what they do know about it so um yeah it's an interesting uh, it's been an interesting career and, and now moving into the media that's the biggest challenge <laughs> well, I like to think about everything you did in Formula One, actually, on the cars and working for teams was just preparation for your later career, which is just regularly being asked stupid questions by the likes of me. No, that, of course. I mean, I enjoy this part because it is about bringing the inside to the public, the inside story, if you can. You know, we can't always get it right. And, you know, as we see in many occasions, so the teams don't always get it right either. So, you know, you, you try your hardest to try and see see a situation with a, a car, it's, it's body profiles, it's either moving the airflow around the car or either attempting to move the airflow around the car. But it's, you know, it, it is something that you can spend millions and millions and millions and millions of, of dollars and pounds or whatever you like to call it in research to actually understand the car and make the car better. So for some, you know, idiot like myself to sit here and look at a picture or two of a racing car and try to come up with solutions, it's quite tough. But that's that's what I try to do because I can only put forward what I see and what I think and where I would try to take it. If it was me, where I would try to take that too, to try to get better out of it. And it's interesting to see because on, a, on numerous occasions we have seen developments on cars based on something we said three months ago. You know, I'm not saying we were right and they were wrong, but I'm just saying every every sort of candle you light um, gives you a little bit better, brighter brighter light in the in the room you're in. So you know, every time you can actually get an idea and fire it in there, sometimes something comes out of it. And it's always such a moving target, isn't it? I remember obviously last year when the Ferrari launched, you said you didn't really see why that would be the right approach, and then it worked well, and you're thinking, well, okay, it's worked. But now they're talking about the concept not being right and having too low a ceiling on it compared to the other. So it's uh, it's very much a moving target, but it's uh, it's always been fascinating to hear what you had to say, and uh, very much appreciate that you've uh, dedicated the the later part of your F1 career to uh, to helping the likes of me and uh, the, the watching fans to to understand what's been going on.
Well, our main interview in this episode is about brakes. So before we hear that, Gary, perhaps we should briefly chat about the evolution of brakes in F1, because when you started, it was before we had carbon discs, but it wasn't long before there started to be experiments with it. And I think you were right there at the centre of it, weren't you, with uh, with Gordon Murray and Brabham? Yes, we were. Um, yeah, obviously, the, the, the initial brakes were just uh, steel discs and uh, various different pad compounds that you could put with them. Um, and they were a bit of a nightmare because obviously the dissipating the heat out of the steel was pretty difficult, and the thermal shock into the steel was pretty difficult. So you get a lot of cracking and you know various problems. But you know that that also was probably time. Time would have fixed that problem if you if carbon brakes had never have been invented. Time would have fixed the problem with the steel brakes. But the, yeah, we we at Brabham Gordon come up with a solution where we used these carbon pellets. It was a, a machine disc that had sort of a wedge shape um, parts machined into it, um, which these carbon pellets, you put one in and rotated it and then put a second one in and rotated it, and they all locked each other into position, um, and carbon pads to go with it. And we all sort of laughed at this thing whenever we saw it and built it up and went went to Silverstone with it. And uh, I actually had a drive in it that day just with the carbon brakes because it was one of those sort of situations where... Um, we, we always did shakedown stuff and I used to sort of sometimes take the cars for a little run to see everything was working okay um, which is always quite an interesting part of Formula 1 in those days you wouldn't do that these days, you know, they wouldn't do it currently but yeah, it was nice to see those changes coming in and then, you know, as time went by um, the the carbon became more and more prominent but in those days, because you had like 20 or whatever it was, 16 pellets um, rotated into this steel disc the problem we had then was the consistency of the material and, and one of them would wear dramatically and the, and the rest of them wouldn't or something. So you get this real vibration through the brake pedal. But as time went by again, you know, the, the, the manufacturing of the material improved and uh, discovered that the, you know, the density of the material was really important. So we started to weigh out these pellets and making sure that they were all matched on one side to the other side. So the difference was, was a lot less. Um, and that, that even carried through even, you know, to the beginning of, of my time with... Um, with carbon brakes full time on, on Formula One cars in the nineties, it was just one of those sort of situations where you you had to really pay attention to them. You know, every brake pad had to be weighed independently, um, every disc to to balance them up. You know, it's not such a big deal if you have got two discs in the front of the car that are the same weight, but if you have got one that's lighter than the other one, you know, left to right, then one will wear quicker than the other, and all that sort of stuff. So, it's it, even to this day, it's still quite critical to to really take care and pay a lot of care and attention to uh, to the brake uh, material quality. Um, and never mind that, you know, brake technology itself from the brake companies from Rainbow. You know, it's, it's horrendous the, the, the detail they've gone into over the years to to bring this product to, um, to production. So, uh, yeah, a big change in Formula One. Yeah, and as our interview in a moment will reveal, there's still a lot of progress being made, even though the technology feels like it's quite safe. But it's interesting, though, so, um, what you said about the the steel disc, because steel disc did briefly almost make a comeback on Zanardi's Williams, if you remember, in, uh, in 1999. I remember speaking to Patrick Head about it a few years ago, and he said he was actually very surprised to how well the modern steel discs worked when they were put on a car. They weren't actually a huge disadvantage in terms of performance. No, they weren't. I mean, that's the thing about it. That's why I say through time, technology... You know, wherever you're pushed into a corner, you'll find solutions, and that's what was needed for the steel disc. And obviously, in other formulas, that's what's that's what's happened because people still need brakes, and carbon brakes aren't aren't legal on every every formula. So you know, you have to develop these the, the steel discs as such. Um, I mean, you know, we we, we were we use the word loosely steel discs. You know, it's like carbon discs; they're not carbon; they're carbon carbon. So they're very different from the carbon fiber we see on a on a racing car. Um, but it's one of those sort of situations where um, time will will develop componentry into being more use, usable than it was in the past, always. And steel discs, whenever uh, Zanardi ran with it, you know, he he liked the feel of it. The, the thing about the carbon discs is there's sort of a there's a working window. It needs to be above a certain temperature and below a certain temperature. Whereas the steel disc was much more progressive, so he liked the feel of that disc. Although the end result was the stopping power wasn't quite as good, but it was pretty close to being as good and as I say if a Formula 1 team or a Formula 1 decided that carbon carbon discs were were illegal and you had to use steel discs I'm sure within a couple of years you wouldn't even know there's a difference yeah it's amazing uh, what's achievable 
one of the things I remember about the, those early experiments with the carbon uh, involvement in discs is there was a bit of a tendency for it to overwork the brake fluid and that kind of thing, wasn't it? Didn't Reutemann have a big shunt at Osterreichring, maybe, if memory serves? Um, yeah, I can't, I can't place the shunt with because of that. But yeah, the, I mean, the, the thing about the carbon is the temperature. You can run it so much higher than you could with the steel. So it meant that the cooling was less important, but also that then transferred itself through to the into the brake fluid. So you, you had to have you know something to stop that thermal passage uh, into the critical areas, which obviously you get the fluid boiling. Um, so there was little. Um, one of the first things that I remember was a sort of little ceramic insert that went into the the piston on the caliper um, to stop the transfer of the heat from the brake pad to the into the piston and then as such into the fluid. So, you know, it's not just one thing that you try to do. It's, it's a whole package of events that actually create a better solution. And as I say, the, the thing with the carbon brakes was that it would, it would accept working at much, much higher temperatures, but some of the rest of the ancillaries around it, you know, couldn't. So it's, again, the learning curve you need for all of that sort of stuff. But at least, you know, one thing it did do was stop the, the steel disc from cracking so much. You know, you'd get massive cracks in them, and you'd, you'd have to make decisions as a mechanic then, on the car as to, you know, this, this brake disc here has got a massive crack on one side of it. Do you run the car again because of that? You know, or do you stop and change the discs? So you're always, you, you know, it's always dodgy. You're always fighting something um, right on the cliff edge, no matter what technology you have with, with things like the brakes. Because the one thing about brakes is you need them. You know, no matter what car you're driving, you need to have brakes because you need to stop it. You have all this power, all this acceleration, you have all this speed. But at the end of the day, it, it still has to be able to be stopped so brakes are one of the most critical things, really, on a Formula 1 car, on any car. If you lose the brakes, you're in trouble. Um, that's If the engine stops or the gearbox, you break a gear or whatever, well, you can live with all that sort of stuff. But if you lose the brakes, it, it's not fun. Yeah, it's about the worst thing that can happen. Well, that gives us a really good basis of the history of uh, F1 brakes to take us into our interview. Our guest today is right at the heart of F1 braking technology. Andrea Algeri is the racing customer manager of Formula One for Brembo Racing, which supplies every team on the grid in one way, shape or form. He's been with Brembo since 2008 and has worked on sports car and single-seater programmes in a brake engineering capacity and has experience in his current role stretching back to 2010. So what he doesn't know about F1 brakes isn't worth knowing. So here's my conversation with Andrea Algeri. Well, Andrea, thanks very much for joining us. We're looking forward to getting into the details of F1 braking systems. We'll start off quite basic and, and kind of take it from there. But obviously, most people are familiar with road car braking systems. So perhaps you could just explain a, an F1 top-end braking system compared to what you'd see on a road car in terms of the effectiveness and the technology involved. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, basically, the 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 functional functionality behind the braking system is similar to what we see on the road cars. So we have a, a brake disc and pads that are pushed against the, the disc by a caliper that is basically uh, moved by some hydraulic pressure generated by the driver um, through the the action on on the brake pedal, basically. Uh, the main difference uh, are obviously um, a bit the layout of the brake system because in the standard road car you normally brake uh, at the same time on the front and the rear uh, and the rear um, uh, axle basically with the uh, two two different um, lines that are uh, in some way applying pressure front and rear at the same time obviously. Uh, on the on the racing car, the, the the lines are different. So front are different from the rear line. You have two different master cylinder, and uh, this is late uh, uh, to create some redundancy in case of uh, um, something is not working properly. While, uh, for example, on the road car, when you push the pedal, you always have uh, two different lines, but. Uh, you uh, normally brake front left and rear right or front right and rear rear left uh, uh, wheel at the same time. So apart from this layout, the big difference is obviously consisting in the materials that are used. So um, these compads are made by, by carbon in Formula 1. And while normally in the standard road car, we are seeing uh, 
cast iron discs uh, or in the very top end uh, carbon ceramics that are let's say break discs that are um, sort of uh, uh, link between the two the two extreme in term of in term of material so basically when when the driver hit the pedal generates some pressure moves the pistons uh, inside the caliper the caliper push the pads against the disc and generate the friction that is needed to uh, basically slow down the car dissipating the speed of the car in thermal thermal energy and obviously you talk about the the brake discs as uh, as carbon but it's carbon carbon isn't it which is kind of a very particular form of uh, of carbon material yeah exactly it's called carbon carbon because uh, uh, basically is uh, uh, the way we 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 build up it is uh, starting from a carbon fiber uh, and densify it uh, with some chemical process with uh, uh, carbon coming from methane gas. So you basically start from a very porous matrix of carbon and you increase the density using this chemical reaction, uh, adding carbon to the carbon matrix. This is the reason of the name carbon-carbon. Obviously, the carbon used for the disc is slightly different from uh, uh, the one used for the pads. Uh, in terms of mainly the shape uh, and the measure of the um, the fiber that you use. And uh, obviously, when you push disc and pads one uh, against the other, you generate uh, very high temperature, very high pressure, and this uh, microfusion that happens generate the friction between the two. And obviously, we often hear about drivers talking about brake feel and they experiment with the material in terms of trying to get the feel that they want. So obviously, I think I'm right in saying Brembo has some involvement with the braking system of, of all 10 teams. Uh, I, th- I think I'm correct in, in, in saying mm-hmm. that. So yeah, how much variety is there between teams in terms of their demands and how much variety is there available to individual teams in terms of fine-tuning the, the feel of, of the material? And I guess a big part of that is the, is the pad material. Okay, okay. Uh, let's say that the, obviously the feeling, uh, it really depends on the driver behavior and driving style and also the ability to feel the small difference between one, one system and the other. Uh, Brembo normally supply, as you said, uh, all the 10 teams uh, with uh, at least a few components of the braking system. Uh, in general, we, we propose a pair of material in terms of carbon disc and pads, uh, while basically the caliper are made from aluminium that are very similar to, to across the teams. What is different, obviously, is the shape of the caliper that is fully customized. Also, the disc, I would say that is uh, customize it considering the request of the teams in terms of cooling mainly, but also the driving method. The, the driving method could be different between uh, one car and the other because every every team have its own, uh, let's say, philosophy in terms of packaging, cooling, uh, and so on. So some some teams uh, uh, would like to be more conservative in terms of, uh, uh, let's say, wear management of the parts. Uh, without pushing too much to the limit for cooling. Uh, other teams are have, have an approach uh, very, very strong in terms of cooling, maybe changing uh, quite often the parts because the wear available is, is lower, for example. So Bramble fulfill in any case all the requests from the customer. And again, the, 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 the braking system are fully customized uh, for, for, the, for, uh, for every team. So... Uh, something that you can find on the Ferrari, you cannot find it on on the Red Bull and so on. So there is a strict uh, uh, difference between uh, between the teams. Uh, even if uh, uh, in the last uh, in the last period, basically, uh, sporting regulation change and all the braking system uh, is um, basically published in, on the FIA server, and all the teams uh, can go and explore. What are the competitors basically using in terms of brakes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, big change with the open source rules in in, in recent years. You mentioned brake wear there. I think it's probably worth talking about brake wear. Everyone's very familiar with seeing the carbon dust, but I think people sometimes oversimplify it because with a kind of old school brake disc, you're literally grinding it away. But the process is a little bit different in terms of the wear of uh, of, of carbon brake discs, isn't it? Yeah, uh, basically the carbon have, uh, let's say, a very, the, the, the downside of the carbon is that it's not a very 
um, doesn't last very long compared to other to other material, obviously, but is on the other side very light and have a very high thermal conductivity, so is able to dissipate the big uh, uh, thermal, let's say, energy that you have to put on the brakes to slow down this kind of car without any big mass that you can see maybe in SUV vehicles or something like that. So the the advantage, obviously, on, on the carbon are. are um, uh, very clear. The problem is the wear, but in the sense that uh, you have to manage correctly the temperature. Uh, the Brembo material, honestly, uh, doesn't wear mm, too much compared to the to, to the competitor. We'd say that uh, we have a very low wear. We are mm, speaking about 0.1 millimeter every 100 kilometer. So more or less, uh, this is the, the the wear rate that we have seen in standard condition. Obviously, if you, if you go out of the uh, suggested temperature range, obviously, this wear can vary a bit. And uh, obviously, the, the, the most critical situation is when you overheat the, the brakes and the carbon go very high in temperature and the wear rate is uh, very high. And the risk is obviously uh, go to the minimum thickness before the end of the race or before the end of the session. This is the main, I would say, risk. but. Uh, honestly, in the last years, uh, um, material and the team are, let's say, uh, evolving their, their, their approach in order to basically reduce this kind of risk. So obviously that must mean there's tremendous durability in terms of the brakes. I know there was an attempt to change the rules to to mean you could change the brakes less. That was dropped. But an average an average two car team, how much will they be getting through in a year in terms of the boat, in terms of discs and, and pads and calipers? Uh, yeah, we are obviously the, the approach is different between small teams and top teams. Uh, we are speaking about uh, 100, 150 up to 250, 300 discs for every team. I mean, so two car for the complete season, including including testing, even if now the, the winter tests are limited, but maybe also tire tests and so on. And uh, obviously this is uh, related to the wear that you have on the, on the carbon material. Again, these are numbers related to Brembo Carbon that uh, allow you to run the disc for uh, two or three weekends. Uh, obviously, if you are using another another material that is wear more, you need you need more more these compared. But this is uh, quite a realistic picture. And talking about the, the the way the brakes are managed, you mentioned the temperature effects. What's a a good temperature window both for achieving performance from the brakes and ensuring that you don't get excess wear? Where, where's the window and how wide is it? Okay, okay. The the temperature mainly is related to the carbon performance. So the window that we suggest to the team is between 250 up to 500 Celsius degree. Uh, this is a, a temperature measurement at the end of the straight, what we call is end of the straight temperature. So um, just before it, it the breaks, uh, uh, at the end of a long straight. This allows you to have the best performance in terms of friction and also keep under control the wear. Uh, on the other side, you have the calipers. The calipers obviously overheat uh, um, after many, many breaking events because the, the, the carbon is, uh, let's say, running hot. Uh, because during the braking, the, the carbon can go up to 700, uh, even 1000 degrees. So you have to manage also with the cooling, not only disc and pads temperature, but also the caliper temperature. The caliper temperature is made, say, say the caliper is made by aluminium, so the temperature should be kept below 200 degrees. And uh, again, the temp high temperature on the carbon means that mm, you wear more and you maybe lose some performance in friction. Very high temperature on the caliper means that you have long pedal and this is something that the driver complain um, a lot. And to manage this, obviously, you, you cannot increase the cooling um, while you are driving. The only action that you can do is uh, what we call uh, lift and coast. So they basically release the throttle uh, and uh, wait a fraction of second or maybe uh, one second before it the brakes. This allow the car to cool to cool better. The, the braking system and uh, sometime uh, the situation could be recovered some other not and uh, it really depends on the temperature you're running on the car can brake bias be used to great effect in terms of that management or is that a very small contributor 
No, no, clear. No, no, no. The, the, the brake uh, bias can be tuned also not only for dynamic of the car to increase the performance, but also to manage this kind of situation. Moving maybe uh, rearward uh, the bias, you can save a bit uh, uh, the front and re reduce the temperature on the front. Obviously, it's not the best in, in terms of performance because when you are doing this kind of action, you are losing lap time for sure. So it's something that uh, should be uh, let's say uh, you have to, to to make some choice during during the race. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance, and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. Obviously, the braking systems have changed quite a lot in the past decade or so with the arrival of the uh, the V6 turbo hybrid. So it's probably worth talking through how things have evolved, particularly with the introduction of the ERS package and the brake-by-wire technology, which I think Brembo supplies control units as well for that to some, some teams, mm -hmm. I think I'm right yeah, in saying. So yeah. very heavily involved in that. So how much has that changed things? And can you give an idea of what's going on dynamically kind of in the moment as this changes and the the brake by wire system adjusts to give you the consistent uh, rear brake bus okay yeah it's a quite obviously a complicated uh, topic let's say but let, let's try to keep it this simple so basically the rear um, the rear engine uh, so i mean the the recovery of the of the energy on on the rear axle mean that the braking system on the rear axle is less stressed and so basically is used less okay so the dimension on the rear axle since the beginning of the recovery era basically um, the, the the rear brakes became smaller and smaller okay now we have a, a 328 millimeter disc on the front while on the rear uh, the the rules allow you to use uh, 280 millimeters maximum diameter for the rear brakes. Already, already with this number, you can understand that the rear brakes uh, are very different. Before the BBW era, uh, basically front and rear brakes were exactly the same, considering that the uh, Formula car have important aero effect that balance basically uh, the braking uh, on the front and rear axle. So with this BBW, the first thing uh, uh, that, that was changed are the dimension of the brakes and, 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 the, and the usage that, uh, that you do uh, with this. On the other side, dynamically, the, um, uh, the driver is no more connected with the rear axle. Uh, what I mean with this, uh, when um, the driver hit the pedal, can brake directly on the front axle with the line, so the pedal is directly connected with the front axle. While for the rear axle, the pressure generated go in a simulator, and uh, the rear pressure, so the pressure that are generated on the rear caliper, is managed by a, what we call BBW, that is just an uh, hydraulic actuator that generates the pressure on the rear axle, but is fully controlled by the um, ACU of the car, so the, the, the electronic part of the car. And this is, uh, let's say, needed because during the braking, you have a part of the braking that is managed by the, the electric motor and the recovery of the energy. And the other is managed by the standard braking system, so the, the dissipation of the speed through uh, through friction and, uh, and thermal and thermal uh, thermal energy, these uh, two effects should be blend. Okay, you have to blend it together in a single braking event. So it's something that happens very fast, and the driver cannot obviously manage by by itself, but he need uh, uh, basically an automatic uh, uh, aid, you know, to 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 do this kind of job. And to get an idea of the complexity of that system, how reactive does it have to be? What sort of sampling rate is it reacting to? Because obviously, when you're under braking, the, the, I imagine the amount that's being harvested, the impact on the braking is constantly changing. It's not just going to be a linear, straightforward one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are speaking about uh, thousands of seconds. So uh, really millisecond, uh, a few milliseconds to, to, to change the condition. And uh, obviously, uh, the, um, the electronic control of the of the car can uh, uh, let's say use different parameters coming from the front brake 
um, the pressure generated by the driver, the temperature of the front disc, and evaluate the situation to uh, give as an output the, 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 rear, uh, the rear pressure that are able to, to break the car on the rear axle. And this is also, uh, let's say, change a lot also on the on parameter and the brake bias that uh, the driver should, uh, should is able to, to, to choose between one turn and the other, and not only during the, the single braking event. So this is where we get into the kind of customization of braking shapes and that kind of thing. How, how much progress has been made in the past 10 years in terms of that optimization? Because you've got the first stage, which is just making it drivable. But then there's the whole thing of the dynamic input on, on the car. So that must be hugely complex and actually quite a bit of performance in that. Yeah, for sure. I would say that in, in terms of uh, mm, brake material, so I mean the friction material, this can pass. The main, um, let's say, advantages and progress that we did in the last 10 years are mainly on the constants of the performance across the life of the component, um, trying to guarantee a very uh, constant mu and performance uh, uh, across uh, many different kilometers and uh, in, in trying to open a bit uh, uh, the temperature window where you can use the, the carbon. In this way, the carbon can be used uh, also in uh, uh, wet condition without any problem uh, or very high temperature for, for, for the that kind of track that for, for their layout are very demanding in terms of temperature on average temperature on the brakes. The caliper, obviously, uh, you are going to look for uh, the lighter uh, caliper possible without losing stiffness and giving to the driver um, a stiff pedal. So in this sense, we we make some development in, in the raw material of the caliper and uh, on the shape of the caliper. Uh, topolo topological optimization was one of the uh, let's say new new solution that we use and we uh, we use to to guide our designer to to basically put the material in that area that are very important for the caliper stiffness uh, without, let's say, shaving the material where it's not necessary, trying to save some grams and so on. So trying to get the best uh, weight stiffness ratio uh, that you that you may uh, ask for to the, to the caliper. Uh, on the BBW, uh, for example, the packaging is one of the aspects that we improve, say improved more. And uh, as you said, basically at the beginning, the let's say the tendency was let's let's uh, try to to let it work without uh, uh, big, big drama. And uh, secondly, we, we we start to see um, solution that uh, uh, let's say are go go in the direction to have performance and uh, if something is not working obviously you have to retire the car you cannot uh, uh, let's say uh, think to finish the race with the bbw that is not performing at its best at the beginning of the process obviously uh, the bbw uh, have been designed also to let's say uh, run uh, the car in general to, to, to run without the bbw that was performing at the best one of the other changes there's been recently is the increase to the 18-inch wheel rims, which obviously had an impact. I think that was the last time I spoke to you was when you were preparing for, for 2022. Obviously, that created various different challenges. What was the reality like when it came to understanding the cooling characteristics and that kind of thing? I know some teams had more trouble than others in terms of uh, optimising that. How, how big a challenge was that shift and how how well did you hit the objectives for the start of last year? I would say that we, we we cope quite quite well with this big challenge. Obviously, as you said, uh, the, the the main difficulties uh, have been basically try to imagine something from from zero, basically because we didn't have any 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 reference. And uh, let's say everything has been done a few years ago uh, because obviously to to make uh, carbon development takes a lot of time and apart from the shape of the disc we have to redesign basically the the raw material structure to work with this new dimension uh, to be produced in big scales obviously with this kind of uh, uh, new dimension that are required and review a bit our our process in general but the the most critical part was that you don't have, uh, we didn't have at the time, a car 
to, to test it. So we have to do it uh, uh, by our own uh, on our on our dyno. So the dyno, the dyno bench that we nor normally have here in Brembo, uh, run a lot of this kind of disc, a lot of um, let's say variation between the two between the sorry between the two three solution that we target as as reference and then choose the best one making modification and uh yeah it was a very very long process i would say that uh, considering how the 2022 season went uh, we are we are quite happy with our with, with our development we are continue continues working to follow basically the increasing performance of this kind of cars that are let's say i would say at the beginning of their uh, let's say development process so we are trying to cope with the increase in performance uh, uh, trying to give uh, to the teams uh, material that is strong enough light enough and perform uh, in, in the right way i was looking through some of the promotional material that went out and there are a few things in there that changed for this year the brake systems were lighter 300 to 350 kilos which you think uh, 300, 300 to 350 grams even kilos would be impressive <laughs> um Obviously, that's I kind of get that. But there was also a claim about a 5% increase in braking torque, which I must admit surprised me. There could be such a big gain because I'd assume this is fairly mature technology. So where do you find such a big step? Because 5% is very significant. Well, I would say that uh, already in the 2022, we have we been, let's say, looking for this kind of number that are obvious, as you can understand, are, um, let's say, uh, coming are coming from the teams. Every teams have its own evaluation of the braking torque uh, uh, that is difficult to measure because of, uh, let's say, you have uh, obviously uh, longitudinal deceleration, but also you have a lot of IRO, IRO effect that you have to detract from this kind of calculation. And everything is, uh, let's say, uh, in some way related to the to the PLE tires. So every every teams have its own. Uh, calculation and simulation about about this so the five percent is an average value that we commonly see across all the teams and this is only coming from aero um, optimization of the car basically and also maybe something also coming from from the Pirelli tires uh, i would say that our disc were in general able to uh, let's say mm, uh, resist this kind of uh, torque increase since last year but with this year we make few small mm, change in the geometry of the disc and then in the driving shape uh, i mean the uh, the shape that uh, uh, let's say designing the the link between the titanium bell and the carbon disc in order to have uh, uh, the same safety factor that we had last year. So in this way, we are in the same position of the 2022, even if, the, the as we say, the, the car performance are increased. What we have to know and we have to imagine is what is going on in the next year if, the, if this kind of value continuously increase uh, in this way. And obviously, from what you said earlier about the durability of the disc, it would suggest that cooling seems to be something that temperature management is something that teams are quite well on top of. Is it still fairly straightforward for them to get satisfy the cooling demand of the brakes with the reduced aero control they've got? And obviously, there's limitations in terms of things like the cooling holes. You've got the three millimeter minimum as of last year. So obviously, quite a lot changed in, in that regard. But presumably, that's been coped with quite well. Yeah, I mean the let's say the corner geometry was uh, very new and uh, with big new constraints for us. So a lot of cooling less compared to the 2021-2020 cars. The difference uh, obviously are the dimension. So the bigger disc helped the loss helped us a loss a lot. Sorry, because basically. Uh, with bigger disc, you can cool it better, even if the dimension of the holes are slightly slightly bigger. Uh, so we are we have a minimum of three millimeter. In the past, we we arrived two point five uh, millimeter, even one point eight in some in some cases. But uh, let's say now the dimension are, are fixed by by the rules. Uh, in general, anyway, the teams have more space to cool down and to let the air go inside the corner 
and let's say try to to recover the the cooling that we lost uh, with the with the wheel cover and uh, you know the the wheels uh, that are closed by 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 the uh, yeah the drums and so on. So in general, uh, at the beginning, it seemed, seemed quite, quite quite difficult to recover this kind of level of cool cooling, but now we are we are in in a good position. And anyway, it's always uh, a trade off between uh, you know performance and cooling and let's say safety that you would like to take in the, on the temperature management of the car. You can run very at the limit, uh, reducing the duct as much as possible. Otherwise, keeping the duct a bit more open and let you run more relaxed and let's say have more margin for possible problem traffic or so on during during a race or an event and in terms of the future uh, obviously as you said you've got to guess for the next few years what the performance increase will be there's also going to be a significant rule change coming in 2026 so what does the future hold for the braking technology in F1? What do you expect to change? What do you know is going to change in the in the coming years, particularly for 26? Yeah, we have, uh, let's say, uh, we've foreseen something, let's say, new in terms of uh, layout of the braking system, starting from the 2026, because the re- energy recovery will be even more uh, important. So, again, the reduction of the rear the rear axle uh, in terms of brakes will be will be for sure something that that will happen and we will will have to to cope with this on the other side the teams are pushing to have uh, uh, parts that uh, last longer this is for budget cap reason but also to let's say reduce the amount of spare that they would like to that they have to order basically to to fulfill a very long uh, a very long season. So, if we are speaking about uh, a 25 races or even more, and uh, the budget cap is more or less not increasing at the same uh, the same speed, uh, the request is have a caliper that lasts longer, uh, wear uh, wear rate of the carbon lower. Uh, this go with uh, uh, let's say um, is needed also to look uh, at the constant performance across the life of the component, but also just to basically buy something uh, something less, you know. So the simple demands, cheaper, more durable, more performant. Correct, correct. <laughs> and lighter, like maybe, every and lighter. <laughs> ah, of course, of course, yeah, like every customer uh, ever. Well, thank you very much, uh, Andrea. It's been fascinating to get some insight into F1 braking technology with you. It's been, uh, it's been fantastic. Thank you, Ed. Thank you for your time and it was a pleasure. If you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on anything at all, F1, ancient or modern, just some technical question you've always wanted to know the answer to. Send a written email to podcasts at therace.com, or if you prefer, record a voice note and send it to us, and make sure you let us know who you are that we can play on the show. We've got two questions this week, and our first is in audio form. Hi, Ed and Gary. My name is Cy Ferguson. I live in Southern California. Been a Formula One fan since Prost and Senna were duking it out in the MP44s. I'm um, 43 years old. I thoroughly enjoyed watch Seb Vettel um, push Nigel Mansell's iconic Williams championship winning car um, to the limit on sustainable fuel before he retired. My question is, would said sustainable fuels be able to eke out um, peak performance in proposed future formulas? And what are the potential downfalls or um, reliability issues that might come um, with such um, changes in fuel used? Thanks, guys. Keep up the great work. Cheers. Well, you know, again, it's a bit like the brakes. Um, if it was now re- required to use that fuel, then everything would get evolved and, and it, you'd, you'd uh, recover from all those problems. I have no doubt that you will get the, the power out of it. Reliability issues, obviously, people will um, address those situations. The teams will address those situations. The manu- engine manufacturers will address it. So no matter what is thrown at a group of people like Formula One, they will find a solution to it. And... 
that that that's the greatest challenge. You know, Seb was right in what he was saying about the the fuel. You know, it is great to be able to run the car like that um, with a sustainable fuel in it. And maybe that's the direction we should be taking. You know, we're talking about regulation changes for 2026. Maybe those are the bigger steps that we should take because we're we're tinkering with it. To be honest, I suppose you might call it in Formula One. We are tinkering with that change of fuel, um, but maybe we're not doing a big enough um, a big enough step change. But I, I think every problem will be solved. Um, you just got to throw the problem out there and uh, and and let the teams and the fuel companies get on with uh, finding the solutions to it. Yeah, it's an interesting trade-off as Vettel said F1 should make the change straight away and they could move to a sustainable fuel IndyCar style. But when we interviewed Pat Simmons on this podcast about the future fuels, he said the delay is because F1 wants to do it properly. So that's about working towards fully synthetic fuels using carbon capture technology, which is still relatively immature. That's what the Aramco developed F2 and F3 fuel that's being used this year is all about, which is a very significant step. And that will feed into the F1 fuel project for the rule change for 2026. So it's a tricky balance, isn't it, of doing a little in the short term, as Vettel suggested, compared to making a bigger step in the longer term, which is what what F1 is doing. Well, yeah, nothing's ever right, and never a right solution. But I think that the way the world's going and and the, the climate change, that Formula One should be setting an example. It's a it's a very worldwide formula that you know that uses fossil fuels to achieve a goal, or uses a percentage of fossil fuels to achieve a goal. So, at the end of the day, even though you know the racing cars out there that we see in Formula One, the percentage they use is so minute relative to road cars. Um, but it is, it is the, you know, it is the public eye. It is the vision. It is what can be achieved with a certain thing. Um, if Formula One was, was, you know, all electric, um, would people go out and buy electric cars? Um, more people would probably look at them because it can be done. You know, Formula E is a, a very different formula from Formula One. Um, and one of the things I'm never quite sure about Formula E is why, why it is the way it is. Why isn't it an electric, as such, touring car championship? DTM, DTM, for example, in Germany could become electric tomorrow. Um, and then you see the high-performance cars that are electric and how far they can go. So it's one of those sort of situations. I think that it, whatever you throw at Formula One, it will find solutions. And if, as Pat Simmons says, they want to take it you know, step by step, the world's changing dramatically day by day. So at the end of, at the end of it, the time, you know, you're always playing catch up. And sometimes you have to take that big step first and, and sort of like resolve the problems um, in a bigger manner or in a, a, in a bigger a bigger amount of problems immediately. Because if you keep solving small problems, you also keep generating more problems. So if I was making some of the decisions, I would be taking a bigger step than Formula One has taken for 2026. And the second question comes from Thomas, who uh, is from a part of the world not so far away from where you are now, who says, this is a question or musing from a dairy man for Gary. Carlos Sainz reported after Jeddah that following is more difficult than last year. Is this specific to the Ferraris or are the teams finding ways of creating outwash, ultimately diluting the current regulations and their intended impact? If so, this is disappointing and shows that the teams are more dynamic and resourceful than the regulators. Well, I guess there's a hint in the answer to that, Gary, by the fat Haas, which has a similar concept, has also complained about having more problems with this. Yeah, I think you always will. When you've got a, you know, no matter what the level is, when you've got a, um, a racing car, a projectile passing through airflow, um, and that airflow has a degree of turbulence in it, then some cars will be affected a little bit more than others. Um, it depends on how, you know, obviously the, the airflow is managed. And that, that will always happen. You know, these cars... They're generating more downforce than they were last year, even though with this floor regulation change and the height of the floors changing that little bit, they're generating more downforce than they were last year. And you don't—that doesn't happen for nothing. They're—they're—they're they're, they're doing it because they're—they're they're using that airflow more. And when you use that airflow more, you're going to create more, more turbulence. Now, whether it's outwash or whether it's just diffuser turbulence, or you know, it can come from anywhere. The 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 fact you've got a racing car that's got four big wheels and tyres in the open air, they are always going to create some sort of turbulence. And really, the, you know, we talk about outwash like it's the magic thing where suddenly you're, you're spilling airflow out, out around the tyres, uh, front tyres or rear tyres. And, and that's what makes the car work better because that's, that's airflow that's not going under the underfloor of the car, of your car. 
So at the end of the day, that's how you get more downforce out of it by by making sure you're you're allowing the underfloor to have as clean an airflow as possible and getting rid of all that turbulent, you know, mucky airflow around the outside of the car and somebody else coming along behind it is going to be affected by it. Now, why the Ferrari sort of theoretically concept should suffer more than, let's say, the Red Bull concept in following another car, uh, I'm not quite sure of that at all. I'm not sure, quite sure why that should be. But um, I'm sure there's lots of reasons for it. But I think that any car following... Um, a Red Bull, which I suppose unfortunately most cars are following a Red Bull at this point in time, will suffer from the turbulence created by that, by the red, by the by that type of, of uh, car. So I'm not saying it's a Ferrari's problem that they suffer from turbulence more than other cars. I don't think they do. I think the fact that they're not leading the bunch is the big problem. So Sense needs to buckle down and say, yeah, these things happen. Um, there will be. Racing cars are always difficult to to drive. Uh, there will be effect by the turbulence of following another car. The most important thing is get your car quick enough so you're not following anybody else, and then uh, maybe you can take a step forward. There's also a point at the end of that question about showing the teams are more dynamic and resourceful than the regulators, which I guess is always going to be the case, isn't it? Because there's ten teams with vast resources against much smaller teams trying to corral the cars to perform in the way they want to. So. I don't know whether it's something you can really heavily criticise because that's just going to happen, isn't it? Yes, it is just going to happen. Now, you know, we, we've seen this twice, I suppose you could say, that the two stages of looking at the aerodynamics of the Formula 1 car and trying to make it better. 2009 was, I think it was 2009, was the first stage uh, when I was reasonably critical of what appeared from um, from the, the regulators and the fact that, you know, it was a very, very naive um, concept they had, a very, very basic um, car. And obviously it took the, it took the teams and the, their manpower that they had at least one day to overcome the, uh, the, what they'd laid down as being the, the, the solution to, to overtaking problems. Um, and, and then we went through a period of time whenever the cars just got worse and worse and worse. And now we're back there again. Now this this time, as Pat Simmons himself said, there's a lot more research being done into the cars that are currently, or cars that were created for 2022 uh, when these regulations first came in. But even still, you know, the teams will overpower that because each team has more manpower individually than the FIA totally, um, or than the regulating body totally. So, you know, you get 10, 10 times that power to try and find solutions to the problem and obviously as we see you know you know once one team gets it right the other teams will start following suit so that's always going to be the way that it's going to be hard to keep on top of it unless you can build a system where you can dot the i's and cross the t's consistently just to get on top of these little scenarios that's happening and things you know like front wing end plates and the detail of them and how the front wing falls away uh, how you get more outwash around the, the front tire um, you know, unless you can sort of get on top of that constantly, it's always going to happen. There's going to be step changes. People will get it better and better and better, and then suddenly there'll be a oh, there's no overtaking in Formula One. We have to do something, and you get stupid things that the DRS invented to to be the bandage. Um, but yeah, I don't see any change in that. To be honest, as I say, I think the rules should be updated constantly, um, and you know, with a year's notice, I suppose. But th- th- I would, you know, you'd be able to write rules right now that would help that problem that Carlos Sainz is saying is happening because it'll only get worse. Yeah, it's always a constant battle and they do at least try and tighten up the regs to minimise things like outwash, etc. on a rolling basis. So I think FIA and F1 are doing a reasonable job of that. It's not perfect, but it's a tough job as you've laid out and yeah, it's it's edging in the right direction, but you can't just write the rules, the laws of physics out of, uh, out of existence, can you? So it's always going to be a very tough one. Yeah, I, I think I think sorry, Ed, I think the FIA and F one are doing a very good job. The the biggest problem is the teams themselves. You know, they they stand in the way of that change. They, they are the ones that are putting the red light on. Um, I'm sure if they if it left the FIA and Formula One, they would actually see these problems and and address them. But they're not. They have to get this majority voting and you know go on so forth. It's just not easy for them. So yeah, F one's its own biggest problem whenever it comes to that type of um, situation and that type of um, change that's necessary to keep it ticking along nicely 
yeah, I guess that's just inevitably the way things are. Well, thanks very much as always, Gary, for your insight. If you've got any questions for Gary, make sure you send them to podcasts at therace.com and that's podcasts at the hyphen race.com. We like them in voice note form, but you can do them in written form as well. We'll be back in a couple of weeks after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix for our next edition with Gary. But in the meantime, keep checking the race website. Loads to read on there, including regular articles from Gary. So join us next time for more from Gary. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.